You're listening to GlendaleCC.org and to the Glendale Christian KY podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We hope that this message encourages you in your walk to love and follow Jesus. Thank you for listening. Well, hey, welcome to worship, and we're glad that you've joined us for another edition of Glendale Christian Church Online Worship. And today we're continuing in our series, Growing Down, where for the last couple of weeks we've been asking the question, what does it look like to be an adult? And what if those things that make us an effective and functional adult in the world actually keep us from Jesus? If you've missed the last two weeks of this series, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those messages because those messages have really laid the groundwork for where we're about to go for the rest of this series. Over the next several weeks, we're going to begin to make the shift from the things that we've always been taught or that we think that make us good adults and how we can grow down in those so that we might be able to grow up in Christ. If you're to believe everything that you read and see on social media like Facebook and Instagram, and hey, why wouldn't you? Then you probably believe that you're the only one who doesn't have perfect kids. I mean, everybody else's kids are perfect, right? But yours, they they seem to misbehave and throw tantrums and are just excessively needy. Take bath time, for example. If social media is is to be believed, then it's all, you know, water fights and cutely placed bubble beards. And I'll tell you that when my boys were little, there was some of that in our house. But it wasn't that way most of the time. When the boys were were little, it it was a battle for parental sanity between towels that were drenched and never hung up, um, wondering how the water got on the ceiling, dirty clothes that never seemed to make it to the hamper. By the time the hot water ran out, usually so had my patience. But there's hope. My boys have now mostly grown into the age of, and, and realm of self-directed showers and being responsible for their own bathroom. And that's part of growing up, isn't it? it it's learning to do things for yourself. Um, you gradually learn how to cook food and make your bed and do your own laundry. Albeit some, it's a, it's a little slower learn than others and maybe still even a, a work in progress. But it's independence, right? That's what we're teaching. And independence is a good thing. It's a necessary thing. As we parent our children, we move toward the end of releasing them into the world. And one of the litmus tests for whether or not we've done a good job in raising our kids is just how well our kids will be able to operate on their own in this big old world. But self-reliance or or independence, it's a slippery slope. While self-reliance is good and right for the way that we function in the world, it makes for a very poor characteristic for children of God. In fact, self-reliance or independence actually runs opposite of the gospel. The core of the gospel is hinged on an understanding of our complete powerlessness. While the message of every other spiritual system is essentially you can, the beginning of understanding of Christianity is embracing the fact that no, actually you can't. And the reason you can't is not because you're not smart enough or wise enough or strong enough. It's because your inability is a function of the state of your being. There's a popular illustration that preachers used to use many years ago. It went like this. Imagine yourself stranded at sea. There's no boat in sight, not a piece of driftwood for you to hold on, nothing. It's just you and this vast ocean. And and you know you've had some swim lessons, but you're no fool. You know that in this big old ocean, it's just a matter of time. You can only tread water for so long. And so the minutes start to tick one by one. And with each second, you know that your strength is a little bit less than it was before. All of a sudden, you you start to feel that your kicking legs are getting a little heavier. 
You tilt your head back as you realize that you're sinking just a little bit deeper. Now your ears are almost fully submerged and you know the end is close, right? And then suddenly you take on that first bit of water and you cough it up and your heart starts to beat a little faster. You get to that sudden realization that there is no hope for you, that this is the end. Your head dips again and you prepare to swallow when suddenly out of nowhere you see a rope that's being thrown your way. With your last ounce of strength, you grab it and you pull it, pull on it and you pull yourself to safety. And that's what it means to be saved. Jesus, when you couldn't save yourself, tosses you a line at the cross. Just reach up and grab it and pull yourself to safety. And I get it. Preachers would, would use that to inspire a sense of danger and urgency in the hearts and the minds of their listeners. There's just really only one problem with that illustration. In that illustration, we get way too much of the credit. In contrast, this is how the Bible describes describes all of humanity in Ephesians chapter 2 Paul says this he says and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you had previously lived according to the ways of the world according to the rulers of the power of the air the spirit now working in the disobedient we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts and we were by nature children under wrath as others were also you got to hand it to the apostle Paul He doesn't pull any punches. There is no silver lining in this cloud. You notice the word that he uses to describe all of humanity, to describe our human condition? Dead. Dead. If that word doesn't speak to the desperation of of our situation, then nothing else does. In fact, this word, dead, it moves our situation well past desperate and into the territory of hopeless. Nobody goes to a funeral and stands around and and chit-chatting only to to point up to the front of the church and to their friends and say, hey, I wonder what Frank is going to do this weekend. You know why? Because Frank is dead. And dead is dead. And there, there is no coming back. It's game over. In fact, deadness is a condition that renders someone incapable of changing anything about their situation. This isn't a picture of someone drowning, taking on water. Instead, what we have here in Ephesians 2 is a picture of a corpse, dead, bloated, floating face down in the sea. No strength, no power, no hope. And that's the beginning of of understanding the gospel. Without that beginning, a person might might be able to have a positive attitude and to look on the bright side and say a few uh, uh, encouraging words to others. But they'll never be right with God. They'll never truly be alive. So enter Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 continues with two of the most amazing words in all of Scripture. We were dead. And then Paul says in verse 4, But God. We were dead. But God. We had no hope. But God. We could not rescue ourselves. But God. The gospel doesn't claim to, to help the weak. The gospel claims to make the dead living again. It's only when we begin to see the the true nature of our utter despair of humanity that we begin to see that Jesus is not just the key to a better life, that Jesus is not just a miracle worker that is only concerned with alleviating human suffering, but that Jesus is our true Savior. Jesus is our rescuer. And according to the Bible, He rescues us from sin and death. And in the ultimate but God moment, Jesus jumps into the sea of sin and death and He hauls our lifeless body, our, not our drowning and, and still barely breathing, but our lifeless body onto the shore. 
And then he leans low and he breathes new life into, into us. And what was dead lives. It is by grace through faith that we, we become right with God and we walk intimately with him. And the prerequisite to receiving grace is seeing your need. A child doesn't have that issue. A child knows without knowing that they are helpless. And while bath time might be a frustrating endeavor from the perspective of a parent, it's also a reminder that this little person is in need, that this little person is not self-reliant, that he is dependent on someone much stronger than he is. And so given those things, hopefully you're starting to see how growing into a self-reliant or into an independent adult might unintentionally fracture a relationship that is built on your need and God's provision. And so there are two things that result from our self-reliance. The first is our quest for security, and the second is our loss of helplessness. You know, I want my boys to feel safe uh, when they're at home. We've tried to make our home, Christy and I, uh, a place where our kids can know that they can always come, a place where they can always be taken care of, a place where they can always feel safe. That's part of what I believe God has entrusted me as their father to provide for them. I am to mirror his greater provision and his security for them. So when they hear him say, I will take care of you, they will have a starting point for, for beginning to understand that. And by God's grace, I pray that they might think of God and his care like this, that it's like dad's, but better. God loves me like dad does, only better. God provides for me like dad does, only better. But at some point in our lives, we all make the shift from assuming security to seeking security. For some, that shift happens into adolescence. For others, it, it happens much earlier. Maybe you, from a very early age, know what it's like to, to carry the burden of your own security. Maybe a, a parent, either by their physical or emotional absence, left that burden on your shoulders. And you might not have had the luxury of worrying about whether you were going to be picked first or last for kickball. You were too worried about whether or not you would be safe at night when the door closed or whether or not there would be anyone there when you woke up in the morning. But regardless of when that transition happens, it happens for all of us. All of us make that transition. And when we do, we spend a great amount of time and resources as adults trying to make ourselves feel secure. We buy insurance policies, we invest in 401ks, we cultivate emergency funds, we avoid the wrong kinds of fats, and we put on our seatbelts, all in an attempt to regain a simple security that we once had when we didn't even think twice about what would be on the table that night for dinner. Notice, though, I said, we try. We try to make ourselves feel secure because security in and of itself is really just an illusion because the stock market will crash, that, that car wreck will happen, that diagnosis will come, that relationship will end. And when those things happen, the best that we can hope for is that our carefully constructed uh, straw houses of security will, will stand long enough for us to, to endure the weight of the world. The quest for security is really just a manifestation of our self-reliance, regardless of our spiritual beliefs. You don't have to be a Christian to, to do this. In fact, I would argue that all of us, whether or not we're Christian, do this. We all need it and we all do it. And security for adults becomes the elephant in the room. It's the thing that we're constantly seeking, yet, yet all of us know it's just teetering on the edge of non-existence and could crash at any moment. But there's another manifestation of our drift toward self-reliance that is particular to Christians. It's the slow but steady pull that we feel that, that takes us away from the initial truth of, of the gospel that emphasizes our powerlessness. 
we move from being cognizant of our great need and and toward a form of religion that where we consider ourselves saved by grace and yet we trust in our own graces and our own good works to keep us in God's good graces. This Christian legal, legalism is is a form of sanitized self-reliance. It's also the story of the church of Galatia. You might know the the, the story of the churches of, of Galatia. Paul start, started these churches in that in this province on some very simple principles, but they all boil down to this one principle, that a relationship with God is built on faith in Jesus Christ and His finished work at the cross. No more, no less. And, and the people there in Galatia, they embraced this message. They built their lives around it. They turned to this system of religious thought and they began to do their business and raise their families and to turn to Jesus as the center of their universe. But then as Paul was apt to do as a church planner, he left. And one day some new characters came walking into the towns and the cities of Galatia. And these people looked a lot like Paul and they taught about many of the same things that Paul did. And they even seemed to be just as educated as Paul was. And they, like Paul, said they had a message for the people uh, about God and about Jesus. But their message was a little different in some subtle but very important ways. The message of these new teachers was that while faith in Jesus was a good thing, to be truly right with God, you had to combine that faith with certain actions. You had to, claim, uh, they claimed that anyone who wanted to be in a right relationship with God had to uh, practice certain religious holidays and had to abstain from eating certain foods and that all the men needed to be circumcised. Now keep in mind that these Galatians weren't converted Jews, they were Gentiles. History calls these teachers the Judaizers because their message was that the pathway to God was not just through Jesus, it was become Jewish first, then believe in Jesus, and then you can be right with God. And the result of this teaching was that a portion, maybe even a majority, believed this message and they began following this new teaching. And eventually Paul gets word of what's going on back in the cities of Galatia. And he wrote a letter that we have in our Bible that we call the letter of Galatians to deal with this issue in a very decisive manner. And Paul begins his letter not with a flowery prayer like he does in some other letters, but with these words. In Galatians 1.6 he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In this letter, we find Paul using some of the harshest words in all of the Bible. And throughout these six chapters, Paul calls these, these people who turned from the gospel, he calls them stupid and foolish. He claimed that they hated freedom and that they loved the law. And he says that basically he wished that any false teacher would simply go to hell. It's a scathing rebuke and one that actually might cause us, in the, at least in the back of our minds, to wonder, hey, Paul, don't you think maybe you're overreacting just a little bit? I mean, it's not like they're denying that, that Jesus existed. It's not like they're adopting a different kind of God. Is this really that big of a deal? And the answer to that question is, yes, absolutely, it is that big of a deal. That's because the loss of our own sense of helplessness is an abandonment of the gospel in itself. These false teachers were putting the souls uh, of the Galatians at risk when they convinced them that they were not as helpless as they thought. And Paul was shocked that they would desert the gospel. That phrase literally means to, to transfer allegiance. Paul considered these people traitors. Instead of trusting in Christ alone for their salvation, they were trading their trust from Christ to themselves. It was no longer that Jesus has saved me. It was now a group effort. 
And so when we, like the Galatians, start to believe that we are not truly helpless, we are actually traitors to the gospel. Which leads to the second thing that's at risk here. The glory of Jesus. Can you imagine looking to the cross of Jesus and saying, well, that's almost good enough? Saying, it's a pretty good job, but it's not quite there. And can you further imagine the audacity to say that we, by some operation, would would somehow complete the goodness of that sacrifice? That's exactly what the Galatians did. And it's precisely what we drift towards. As we get older, we become more independent and more self-reliant. And when we apply that same tendency to the gospel, we drift slowly with our age out of the beauty of helplessness and into the illusion of self-care until we wake up one day and and convince ourselves that we are just fine on our own. But we don't have to drift toward self-reliance. We can instead choose to grow down day after day into the childlike dependence of a father on the father who alone justifies us but how do we do this how do we grow down in dependence on the father so that we can grow up in jesus well i think it's a lot simpler than you think we can start with prayer prayer is simply about communion with god even though we tend to treat it more like a magic lamp prayer is is really a gift where we can have where we can communicate with god in, in a very intimate way When Jesus' disciples came to him and asked him about prayer, he laid out a a pattern that was nothing short of revolutionary. The disciples had been raised in, in a system emphasizing the esteem and reverence that was rightly paid to God. But Jesus helped them see that there was a way that they could hold that same God in an even higher esteem, but not through separation, through intimacy. And he did it with a single word, Father. This father who in heaven still has a name that should be hallowed and be revered. But but in that respect for his name to be made great, we find not fear, but love. And Jesus wasn't done yet. A few verses later, he would tell them to pray something for themselves. He would say, pray this, give us each day our daily bread. There's a sense of helplessness built into that request. Bread is not extravagant. It was a, a staple of life in the first century. And yet in this prayer, the one praying is acknowledging that even this, the most basic of all things, is still a gift that comes from the hand of God. What's more, we are to pray this daily. Not weekly, not monthly, not yearly, but daily. Give us today our daily bread. And what we find here is a pattern of discipline, self-reminding that helps us remember our own helplessness. This simple act of asking again and again reminds us that that we are not people of of sufficiency, but that, in fact, we are people of great need. That that one of the most basic ways we can grow in our dependence on God is through daily asking Him for our daily bread, whatever that daily bread happens to be on that particular day. The great news of this prayer is that we know that, that we are asking a God who has an inexhaustible supply of bread. And he's not stingy in passing it out for his children on a daily basis. If we're not convinced of God's goodness, then helplessness, our helplessness, would be a cause for alarm. But on the other hand, we can be absolutely sure that God is not only powerful, but also loving. And if we're sure of that, then helplessness is exactly where we want to be. That's because when we are in need, we get the provision and God gets the glory as the provider. 
So how can we know that God will not hang us out to dry? How can we be sure of that? How can we get past our own self-reliance and move joyfully into disciplined dependence? Well, we do that by looking to the cross. Where it's, it's at the cross where God proved His love for us, and when we come there, we feel the freedom of the words of Jesus. They are the words that contradict the words of the Judaizers. They are the words that trump our own need for self-justification. They are the words that remind us that it's actually the best news in the world, that we are helpless. They are the words that direct all the misplaced glory of the world uh, of men and off men and onto Jesus. They are the words of Jesus himself as he hung on the cross. They are these words. It is finished. This ultimate pronouncement of Jesus will resound in a myriad of situations as we're tempted to deviate from the gospel this week. When we're tempted to try and prove ourselves to God and to others instead of recognizing our dependence on Him, it is finished. When we look down on others because of the sin that we see in them and it reminds us of the sin in our own lives, it is finished. When we're too embarrassed to own up to our own shortcomings and our own sin, it is finished. And when we're tempted to hold up our own scorecard of supposed righteous acts before God, it is finished. When we redeclare this declaration of Jesus over and over and over again and in situation after situation, both when we think too much of ourselves and when we think too little of ourselves, we begin to see the truth that Paul closes his letter to the Galatians with in chapter 6, verse 14. This is what he says. He says, but as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. This is the cry of the children of God who, though they are dependent and helpless in every way, are confident in the Father who delights in providing for them. You want to grow up in Christ? Choose to grow down. Grow down in self-reliance and in independence and grow up. Independence on the Father. Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you and we are thankful for the provisions that you provide for us. Father, we know that not every want that we have goes uh, is met all the time, but we know that every need that we have, you meet. And the need that we have, most of all, the need for salvation you have met through the, through the cross of your son Jesus. Father, my prayer is simple today that we would simply turn to the cross of Jesus to find the grace and the, and the provisions that he's provided for our salvation there. That we wouldn't hang our hat on any of our own accomplishments, uh, of our own good deeds, but simply the work of Jesus. Father, may we find that the grace of Jesus is sufficient for all of us. Father, we love you. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.